0: Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm here with Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello. Who did we have on the podcast today, Seb? We had Rafa Honigstein on. We had Rafa Honigstein, a bookman and a journalist who writes for The Athletic. He does indeed. Uh, Incidentally, this is supported by The Athletic. Go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO to receive a 30-day free trial and 50% off. Your annual subscription, that's eight pence a day. And Rafa writes for The Athletic. He does. He's also written um,
1: three excellent books. Uh, so we talk a lot about Jürgen Klopp. Um, we uh, look back at the German national team's defeat to the Netherlands. Mm. Talk a little bit about Bayern Munich.
0: did um, a, a little bit of tactics. We episode. did a bit of
1: tactics. We did Yogi uh, Love's future with the German national team, yes. who may replace him eventually um and we did a book and we did a book we um so we're we're, we're recording this on september 9th which is uh which is release day for um peme autobiography um and yeah that's a great read actually um so do um ref's going to talk about that a little bit but it's um yeah it's really compelling i'm not i'm not a big fan of autobiographies but i really did enjoy it so yeah it's um
0: thanks for that caveat
1: no, no. Well, it, you don't decide. I, I, I feel that that's a symptom of the autobiography market itself, which mm. is kind of can be very self-serving. Whereas Matsaka, he's a very forthright guy. He he's got a lot of opinions. He's about... He's got something to say. He's got something to say, but he's also got something to say which is different to what to to the to the normal conversation. Which is yeah. why I really engage with it. I think um, he's obviously now head of um, Arsenal's academy, and so to mix his set of opinions with. You know, a, a powerful top-flight club. Um, you know, not quite a European powerhouse, but certainly a you know a, a very visible club in Europe. Very, very interesting. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um it'd be fascinating. So do um do have a read of that. All right, well after well, you finish listening to our podcast, yeah,
0: do listen to yeah. this first, please. Yeah. Let's get our we'll leave on, on in the time.
1: background so that it plays for the entire
0: short sure. episode. It's and all about the stats, guys. Yeah. yeah. Incidentally, if you want to leave us a review a lovely review on i don't think it's called itunes anymore the apple universe of audio Uh, or if that doesn't sound right i think the apple
1: universe of audio does not sound right if you want
0: to rate us on the internet stars website whatever those things are you know you push the button you press the key do it really does help us so please do that click with the mouse yes anyway here is uh, the episode thank you for listening Hello, Rafa. How's it going?
2: Hello. It's going really well.
0: Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, will you tell me first, you wrote a very interesting story for The Athletic about Bakary Jatta, who's a Ghanaian player, as you say, it was Gambian. a Gambian, Gambian, Gambian player. player. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Will you, will you retell it for me now?
2: Of course. Um, it's a story that dominated uh, the headlines in Germany over the last uh, couple of weeks, ever since uh, Sportbild broke a story really casting aspersions about the identity of Yatta. Of uh, the Yatta that we thought we knew um, is a, a former refugee who came to Germany as a as a teenager without any parents, uh, grew up in a sort of, um, I don't want to say orphanage, but uh, basically a place where people, where kids without parents had, had looked after, um, was very quickly seen to be very good with the football um, through some people working at... Uh, that refugee camp, he was put in touch with a couple of football clubs, Werder Bremen, and then Hamburg, he went on trial, and at Hamburg, he signed a professional contract. Yeah. So, an amazing story. Um, he's now uh, a regular for them. Um, he's 21 now, playing for Hamburg SV in the second Bundesliga. But in early August, Sporbild had the story saying, well, we think this Yata is in fact uh, Bakary Dafé, a former under 20 Gambian international who had played at a series of professional football clubs all over Africa. And, um, we think he falsified his identity. And in fact, he is uh, two and a half years older. Uh, they, as their witnesses had some former coaches who felt that this guy is the same, is the same player. Uh, you can imagine the, the reaction was very politicized. It became very, very ugly. Um, right-wing party which is very popular unfortunately at the moment the afd used it as a um basically as a stick to to beat the refugee uh, policy of, of um of the federal government saying this is this is the sort of thing that happens you know we our goodwill is being abused by these people on on uh on wrong documents etc mm. um but the the, the the denouement of the story is that the Gambian uh, authorities sent over his passport. He already had that, had that passport for a while, but they also sent over his birth certificate. And he is Bakaryatta, according to this document. So the three clubs who had appealed against the result uh, withdrew their appeal. Uh, there was supposed to be some kind of uh, key witness flying in from, from Africa. That, that didn't happen. And now the story is, um, is over. Um, it could still be... Um, continue a little bit because the Under-21 coach Stefan Kunsch has now said he might uh, see if they can make Yatta eligible to play for Germany which I think is still a couple of years away in the way the citizenship naturalisation uh, works but it's more of a I think of a signal um, and the Hamburger as foul supporters and club they've all rallied around him and uh, it's been quite moving to see his last game and standing ovations etc.
1: Rafa what's the what's effect the been on him personally because um, you mentioned that sort of the, how political the issue has become and he is, you know, at the end of it, a human being who's been, from what you've described, been used as a pawn um, to make certain, you know, various cases in, in the, the German political landscape. How has he dealt with this? And how has he balanced that with obviously trying to, you know, to, to, to make a career for himself?
2: Well, going by what Dieter Hecking, his manager, said, he had some really tough um, few days, certainly a tough uh, few nights after he was jeered... Uh, incessantly against Karlsruhe SC. One of the games that Hamburg won where the crowd seemed to take the sport the story as as given and were somehow blaming him and somehow sort of saying that, you know, you, are, you shouldn't be here. Mm. Um, thankfully, um, there's been lots of positive reactions from other managers within German football saying, you know, this would never happen at our place. Uh, we believe that a guy who's good enough to play football uh, should be treated as a human being and um we would we would never um condone those those scenes. So I think there's been a backlash against the backlash, if you will. Um but we'll see. Um I think as far as the sort of the judicial uh, trial as it were or the appeal is, is concerned, that's all over now. But I think um as a story it might just uh, resonate a bit longer because it does touch upon so many things that people are uh, concerned with in Germany at the moment the whole refugee issue is just it's very big and he's been seen as um, you know as a face for that uh, rightly or wrongly
0: presumably as well it it falls into the category of stories that um, exist now when the truth of them doesn't really matter anymore? I mean, if it's talked enough about over a course of uh, weeks or if the story is big enough initially, then whether or not it is proved or disproved after a couple of weeks, the sentiment can still uh, be pervasive afterwards.
2: Well, some people want to believe what they want to believe, I think. If they... Want to believe the story if they want to believe that this is a guy that's cheating the system that shouldn't be here, he's an emblem
1: for their prejudices, essentially, isn't he?
2: Got into Germany on false pretenses, etc. They will continue to believe that. And we see we've seen that in some of the rhetoric that's being used, it's saying, Well, you know, passport from Gambia, what does that mean? You know, a few dollars buy you any passport in Gambia. Um, so uh, you know, there's racism, there's, there's anti refugee um, rhetoric, and that won't cease. Won't but I think it's, it's also, if you want to put a more positive spin on it, it's also brought out, um, I think, the quite unique power of football. Whereas the Hamburg fans and the club of Faces said, you know, essentially we don't really care. Um, you play for Hamburg and you're one of us. Of course, they're happy that it has been resolved and he is Bakari not Bakari Dafe. But at the same time, I think they were making a wider point that you belong to us, you're part of the family now. And um, I think Kunz is kind of saying similar things. So uh, it's um, you know it's a tug of tug of war and and, and uh, uh, a very sensitive subject. But I think it's brought out both the good and the bad in mm. German society.
0: The other big story that's coming from Germany at the moment, and we must preface by this this by saying that we are recording this uh, a week in advance of its release so I believe that Germany are due to play another game as part of the international play break. Playing Northern Ireland which, which is we, Monday. We have not seen. No. Nope. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the game against the Netherlands uh, in which Yogi um, Love tried a slightly more reactive approach and this is um, thrown up some questions more broadly about German football internationally and whether or not that is the right thing to do. Will you just talk us through what what the manager did uh, in the game against the Netherlands and why that is uh, an unusual thing.
2: Well, this wasn't the first time. His big idea after 2018 was to go from a possessions football that had become a little bit slow, a little bit stale, to a more vertical, more direct approach. And uh, it worked to to an extent in the Nations League, even though the results weren't that convincing. It worked um, against Holland in the first game. It, It worked in a friendly against Holland as well. The... Issue is though that it does rely very much on Germany finding that trigger point and being really strong in transition and then putting the guys up front, namely if he's fit, Sane, Müller, sorry, Sane, Werner, and uh, and Gnabry into into these positions. Now Sane being injured at the moment, that role was uh, was played by Royce. He looked a little bit uncomfortable. And the problem was that Germany didn't quite get the balance right between being solid in defence, but at the same time being aggressive and trying to use those moments to really catch out the Dutch. It worked in very isolated spells, but the longer the game went on, the Dutch realised that there were certain areas in midfield that were basically vacated because Germany were so deep. They started playing around, Germany got tired, Germany got sloppy. They never really got into dangerous areas themselves anymore and little by little they were overwhelmed and were sucked in uh, this very passive and very negative approach and the players all came out saying you know this is not really how we want to play this is not really um, in line with our abilities in line with our aspirations as a side so for Löwfer it was a very uncomfortable evening because it looked like the sort of match that a manager really got wrong and then perhaps more um, more tellingly wasn't able to to fix to rectify mm. you know he wasn't able to push the team out wasn't able to settle them down wasn't able to give them uh, a different sense of rhythm with the ball in midfield and he basically sat or stood and watched as this germany team disintegrated and conceded four goals in in 45 minutes at home so it was a very poor night which would threw up a lots of lots of different questions
1: Rafa, can we go back? A, I mean, just to a few months to to his decision to um, to end the sort of the collective Mats Hummels, Jan Boateng, Thomas Müller era. Like we're in England, we don't really know what it is to transition between successful eras. <laughs> but that is, I, I still don't quite understand that because I understand those players possibly Hummels and Müller maybe a little bit beyond their physical prime, arguably. But what's the what's the justification for that? Because surely a, sort of any. Um, any reimagination is generally helped by those sort of totems of, of the past in a way, isn't it? Or is that is that is that not what he is he, did he see it as a clean break?
2: luth saw these totems of the past being more like obstacles oh, really? on the okay. path to a new Germany. And he I guess his thinking is, you know, if I keep Müller in the team every time Müller does not play, it's a story. Yeah. Every time Hummels doesn't play, it's a story. Every time Boateng is is being left on the bench because I want to give one of the younger guys around it it is a story and these guys are vocal players these guys will not walk away from microphones
1: are they political players not in that sense with the with the press
2: yeah a little bit yeah. um, I mean some more than others Hummer's certainly very political very outspoken Müller to an extent as well Boateng more quiet but at the same time you know you don't there, there's a logic to it. If you, uh, as Joachim Löw, feel that come 2020, the actual Euros, these guys are not likely to be in your starting eleven, it does make sense for to have a clean break now and then give these others the space and time. Where I differ with Löw a little bit um, is when it comes to looking at Mats Hummels' ability. I think still Hummels is someone who, yes, might not be the fastest of players, but... It gives you that control from the back, plays beautiful balls out from um, from centre-back positions. Uh, it's very difficult to press because he's technically very good. It's good in the air, takes responsibility. Lou felt he can do without that because I guess he feels that like Savrüdiger and Zula and, and Tarr are good enough. Uh, and also um, unspoken sort of subtext is perhaps... Hummels uh, being very vocal and being a strong character wasn't always so easy to handle inside the dressing room. So there is now a clamour and a call for, for Hummels to be let in, back into the fold.
1: Oh, especially after the, the way they defend. Because that, that's the thing, you, you talked about his elegance and the ball and how composed he is. That was absolutely the opposite of what Germany were against Hummel. It was chaos. It was, it, was, it was difficult to watch, actually, because obviously you have that direct comparison at the other end of the pitch, Virgil Van Dijk is, you know, anchoring yeah. you know, Dutch side obviously. Um, and De Ligt isn't that bad. And De Ligt, well, yeah. I, I mean, De Ligt, I feel like maybe he's been sort of, he's kind of been anointed a little bit earlier. I think he's obviously going to be a wonderful player, but it's just it looks a little bit shaky. Um, but it's it was it was really strange to watch, and I can imagine if I was a, if I was a German on Saturday morning, and I've got Hummels and Boateng not involved, almost as a kind of almost like a point of principle, it's a very hard thing to look beyond. That happened in England. It has happened in England. Yeah. Well, Terry Lauf, Ferdinand, you know. Leuph
2: has made up his mind and I think it's going to be very, very difficult for him to change it and to track back both in terms of presenting himself as, as someone who changes his mind in the public, which I don't think he wants to do, but also maybe internally selling that to the rest of the team. Now, however, if Rudiger misses out on the Euros, if his injury problems persist, so he picks up another injury, if somebody like Zule doesn't make it, who's now sort of seen as the new best centre-back um, that Germany have, then I think Louv might be forced to bite the bullet because I don't want to see them going into the Euros with Tah and Ginter, for example, at the back, or Niklas Stark. I think that would be, that'd be quite worrying.
1: What is his future, Love? I mean, because obviously there's a little bit of a question mark about his future after the last World Cup, naturally. What is, what's the expectation in Germany about what happens, presumably, after 2020? Is that kind of, is that a natural jumping off point for him? And if so, what happens next for Germany? Well, the assumption
2: is that I think that Germany will play a decent Euro and then Leuph will be given one more shot at at a redemption at the World Cup in 2022. But that is based on the assumption that Germany do not disgrace themselves at the Euro, Uh, do not do something stupid, like get knocked out in the quarterfinals, for example, which should probably be seen as unacceptable at this point. So, and, and I think maybe also sort of a an atmospheric sense of, you know, change is necessary. And after 2018, there was a groundswell of opinion that was saying, okay, this is the end. But at the same time, people still remembered Louvre getting so many things right over the years. And I think wanted to believe that he could make changes and develop this team going forward, at the same time, there was no obvious candidate on the market. Now, this year, or next year, I should say, there is maybe Ralf Rangnick. um, There's maybe Thomas Tuchel, who knows what happens with him at PSG. It could be one or two names, which just by being there might create a different kind of dynamic. But if everything works out more or less as as people hope um, for then Löf will be able to continue until 2022.
0: I mean, Ralf Rangnick makes more sense to me just based on the style of play that he yeah. perpetuated at Leipzig. I mean, the question that I have about Löf and the Germany team, I understand why you make a choice to make a break from the past and try a different style of playing. But it seems to me that the way in which they're attempting to do that is quite different from how many of the younger German coaches in the Bundesliga are playing with those very same players at club level. And I think, for example, you have Kai Avertz, who by the time 2022 comes around is presumably, you would have thought, might be one of the best players in that Germany team, who's a very technically capable player who plays in that, you know, who would be, I know this is, you know, this is touted around a lot, but would be perfect in the Liverpool team under Klopp, for example. Yet the type of football that the German national team is seeking to play is quite different from that. Um, How does that? How did he come to that decision about how to play? Is it based on personnel or is it based more broadly on how he thinks he needs to develop tactics over the next yeah, well, 10 I years? I think
2: Harvard might be a little bit lost in the Liverpool side. I think it might be too think? frantic for him. He's more of a player that wants to have the ball moment. No Mr. De Ozil type character, a real number 10, I think, in the making, a real playmaker. So possession football, I think, for him is, is the way forward. I mean, in Lewis' defence... I think essentially we still see two Germanys because Germany against uh, most teams in the group stage, against most teams in the qualifiers, will have the ball and will have to find solutions against deep defences. So they will not line up with five at the back. They will not try to play in the break because they just, just cannot be done against these sides. So they will have to reconnect with what really made them one of the best sides in Europe, which is the ability to play a wonderful combination of football, but at the same time, having the pace, having the aggression, having the dynamics of it. Now, what Loef tried now against the so-called bigger sides in the Nations League, and again, uh, against the Dutch and, and the qualifiers, is to sort of have a plan B for those games where Germany perhaps have been a little bit naive, a little bit too open, a little bit too possession orientated in the past. And uh, we're seen then as, um, as a little bit one-dimensional. I mean, it happened certainly in 2018. In the against, Mexico game. Against Mexico, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, on paper, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but you still then have to utilise this plan a lot better. And if it doesn't work, or if the personnel isn't quite right for the plan, I personally think you know having two midfielders to hold a defensive midfield, and they are Kimmich and Kroos, neither of whom is really an out-and-out defensive player, more like number eights, cross more like an eight or ten, it becomes very difficult because then you become very passive and very reactive, but with players who are not really suited to it. It's different when France do it, uh, having effectively four central midfielders, one of them is Kante, one of them is Pogba, and you just go bang, um, pass it up to to Mbappe, Yes that is a very effective game plan yeah, but works. it yes. might not be so effective <laughs> for this Germany team. Yeah,
0: okay. So what are your expectations then for for the Euros which I I mean are coming up because you t- you you talked about them like this before and I think other other international coaches often do the Euros are a big thing but they are often seen as a precursor to a World Cup coming 2 years later and you see coaches thinking in these 4 year phases rather than 2 but what are your expectations for the Euro 2020?
2: Well I think the team is good enough to, to contend and to be one of the, the best sides of the Euros. I think the squad has real quality. I think the likes of uh, Sané and Gnabry and Werner, you know, there, there, is, real, there is real talent there um, behind them. You've got, you know, Goretzka and Havertz and Gundogan and Kroos. So this is, this is a good side, but uh, there are question marks about the defence. Uh, both in terms of personnel, um, but perhaps more so in a collective organization. And the big question mark is, you know, can Lewiff get it right? Because in 2018, he got it wrong. He got it wrong when it came to sort of setting up the squad mentally. They went into the World Cup with a sense of entitlement. Um, They were not switched on. They were not ready for uh, the challenge. They were lost uh, when suddenly the Mexicans didn't, just do what they thought they would be doing and, and couldn't adjust. And tactically they they're vulnerable because Löw has this habit of of making mistakes and then he's not always the best manager when it comes to making changes during games when things don't go according to plan. This is something that's been a problem of his tenure through the years. that what, we know Why do you when,
0: think that is? Like, What is it about him as a character that prevents him from being able to do that? I, I don't know if
2: it's a character issue. Um I think it's maybe some coaches are more talented than that than others. I think some coaches are very good at, at um, correcting their own mistakes and come out smelling of roses, even though they get the wrong approach, but then they sort it out. I mean, Guardiola would be a good example. Of course, Guardiola gets most things right, but certainly thinking back of the Bayern days, I can think of many games where by and tried something, and after twenty minutes, just Guardiola just felt, okay, this doesn't work at all. We're going to change it now. Remember the the, the, two, in the
1: first half. The yeah. three centre backs in camp now. Do you remember that game where we yeah. were just to sort of, do? Yeah,
2: they were played man v man all over the pitch. But was, I
1: quite like it, ref It's kind of it's a willingness. I oh, know, uh, no, in hindsight, obviously not, but it's a willingness to at least try things. Where you see sort of some coaches, particularly now, who, who seem to line up their size almost as a way of guarding their own legacy because I don't want that big hiding against a Barcelona Real Madrid by Munich. It was was a disaster, let's let's Mm. not pretend it wasn't, but it was still interesting Mm. for me.
0: This is an advert. This episode is supported by The Athletic, uh, the best place to read about football online. Don't know why I said, uh, in between, because I know that because it's true. Uh, Go to theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO and get a 30-day free trial. And 50% off your Stop Laughing annual subscription. 50% off an annual subscription. That's 8p a day. And guess what? Rafa writes for them. And Rafa's written, and we kind of already did, sometimes when we do this bit, we talk about an article that the person has written uh, who is on the show. But we did that at the very beginning with the Bakary uh, Yatta. There's a lot more
1: than that, though, on there. I mean, I, um, so I yeah, Rafa's probably, um, well, inarguably, you know, um, sort of the uh, UK's biggest German expert. That sounded weird. Like he's an expert on Germans. <laughs> you yeah, know, that, that, this I is think all... no, but you know what? I, he's I, I,
0: more of a German expert than you or I are. That's true. Combined. Yeah, so yeah. it's true. So, no, I mean. I he, would say, I summarize what the he, Athletic do by saying the that they, they that's hire they mainly German experts. They want most authority. of their writing is about. German people and culture.
1: Well, good access as well. He's very yeah. well connected. He knows a lot of the players. He's interviewed mm. a lot of them. He's written books with a couple of them.
0: We made a video of one of his pieces. We made a video of,
1: of one of his pieces. What was um, that about? It was about um, a Jurgen Klopp team talk, um, yeah. and it's kind of written with a sort of with first hand quotes from Jorginho Wijnaldum. It's really good. It has um,
0: pants in it. It
1: does. Cristiano mm. Ronaldo pants. Yeah. What do
0: they call them in America? Not pants. Knickers. No. Pants or
1: trousers in Underwear. America.
0: Underwear. It's talking about a man's. Uh, I feel like uh, the more we discuss this, cloth.
1: the more risk we we, we, we run of, of being put into a different kind of YouTube category. Yeah. So probably stop That's that. That's true.
0: But anyway, do visit The Athletic, www.theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO for a 30-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription. It's really worth it. Back to Rafa. Let uh, Can we talk about Bayern Munich, please? Because it's been a very interesting summer for Bayern Munich. We know that they brought in Philippe Coutinho towards the end, which presumably it doesn't seem like was their first option. Am I am I right in saying that? <laughs> I think that is correct. I was well, checking, see anybody's first option? Just double check I wasn't sure. <laughs> I wasn't sure. Um, but their summer, some of the fans seem to think it hasn't been that brilliant. They did spend quite a lot of money. They did bring in michael Arteta as well. He's
1: a like. He, I, I, there's actually an article on, on the. The tifo football website about him i think he's um i don't think he's signing for now but he's a really really interesting player lovely left foot if you want to have a have a go on youtube mm.
0: um but there are also supporters seem to still be slightly unsure about niko kovac as well uh, i haven't really asked you a question but uh <laughs> <what? Disgusting. laughs> I mean, going. there's so many things Skip there's so going. many things to say about vine broadly speaking was the here's some specific questions was the summer actually under par or are there various reasons for why things didn't come off? Um, and what do you think of Niko Kovac? Because he hasn't really proved himself yet, has he?
2: Well, let, let's start with the transfer market. I think Bayern um, got a few things wrong, but not everything was down to their own fault. Um, you know, with Leroy Sané, it was a very messy and very public courtship. But it was coming to, to the point where they could close the deal. And then he got injured. Uh, in a game that uh, I think he and the people around him felt was p- perhaps not a game that was necessary for him to be on the pitch yeah. um, with a deal in the background coming very close. Yes, City might not have seen it that way. City might have thought that point quite rightly. You know, he's our player. Uh, Guardiola famously doesn't really care so much about what players think and, and what the bigger situation is. He felt he needed him because maris wasn't available. With that weird uh, medical treatment situation from Algeria, so he played him, and of course, after nine minutes, he got injured, which is a bit of a freak occurrence because you know you don't rupture your cruciate ligament uh, every time. So it didn't work out for Bayern, and then they had to had to scramble and had to do something else. And um, you know, having had a, such a hard time finding someone who was going to be a new Robin, a new on the flanks for them, they basically then did something else said, okay, we can't get that kind of player, certainly not now, certainly not someone who maybe is only there until we can get Sané six or 12 months down the line. So let's just see if we can just add something up front in those areas, mm-hmm. Um while at the same time not closing off the options of our real targets, which is... Both sane, but also Harvard. And in getting Coutinho on loan with an option to buy, I think it's it's fair to say that buying did a pretty good deal. Um, Perisic is also just you know someone who will tie them over the next few months. I'm not quite sure if he's really of the required standard uh, anymore. Is he a but bit again, of a placeholder, Rafa, just on that left hand side? Absolutely. And buying will feel you know if everything works out with Sané's recovery, then by the time the Champions League knockout stages come around, he might be be ours uh, if we can get a deal with City. And then Mm. things look very, very different all of a sudden when you've got uh, Coutinho plus Sané plus Gnabry plus Coman and Lewandowski up front. I mean, that's not bad. So I think, sorry, sorry, just to to go back to, to your question, sort of the wider disquiet, if you will, I don't think it's so much the substance that rubbed people the wrong way. It was the noise and the sense that Bayern are a little bit rudderless and uh, and are pursuing lots of people and are not really being able to to sort things out. And in a way, Bayern are a victim of their own success here because they started um, the transfer market having already signed two World Cup winners in Hernandez and Pavard. Uh, one of them was signed in January, the other was signed in, in March, but both deals were basically done months in advance. So that raised a reasonable expectation that other big names were to come very quickly, but then nothing happened until the end of August. So people got, understandably, very, very nervous. And this is all tied in with this perception that Sal- Salih Hamidzic is not very eloquent, um, is perhaps too inexperienced for this important job uh, and is perhaps in combination with Kovac who has had success by winning the double, but also perhaps not quite at the cutting edge of management, um, that sort of the sporting leadership of Bayern is not quite what they need to build a team that can challenge for the Champions League again. So there, there is that doubt, and that doubt will only be allayed if Bayern play a lot better this year and get much deeper in the competition.
0: Mm. Can, can we say as well that, I mean, it mustn't be understated how big a transition it is away from having Robin and Ribery. I mean they're just like unbelievable footballers to have both of those players at one club for such a long time at the same time is already an incredible achievement and then they kind of changed the way that, that football was played there for a while with the whole inverted wingers thing. I'm not saying it was totally you new look, but I,
1: it I, was I don't know, I mean like I feel like not Robin but certainly Ribery has been quite peripheral for a few years now. It feels mm. like I don't know if that's fair, but it just feels like he's been... Well, naturally, because he's getting older, but in terms of his relevance to Bayern's success and yeah. their role in the European... But there's, game, a,
0: there's a symbolic transition happening Yeah, of now. course,
1: of course. I just feel like Bayern, maybe they've had a really long time to to kind of address this situation. I mean, it, it's that's my outsider's it's ignorant very critical. perspective. Yeah, it's very, very critical. No,
2: but, uh, but I think there's a fair point because... This hasn't happened overnight. I mean, they've been looking for replacements right, we've for seen years it now. For a long time. And in Gnabry and Koma, they have players who seem capable of of growing into, um, into solutions, as, as you will. But at the same time, I think Bayern felt that we needed somebody who's a little bit more um, of a difference maker individually, who's on a slightly different level, to really give us that extra bit of edge on the flanks that we will now lose, even if those two were really glorified substitutes over the last 18 months or so mm-hmm. it was nice to have Robin and Ribery in reserve. Um, now you have, uh, Alphonso Davies, who's a teenager from Canada who is talented, but not in a situation where, you know, you need someone to do something in the last 16 Champions League game against Liverpool at home, who are you going to call upon? So I think there was a need to, to add to their, um, options on the flanks and, um, they did so in a fashion by by bringing in uh, Coutinho who of course can sort of start on the left and then drift inside as he did for Liverpool or you know change the system slightly um or have Perisic as well in reserve. So it's not the worst of of transfer um transfer windows for Bayern but Again, I think they didn't do themselves any favors by the way they conducted some of those negotiations, being very vocal about kalamatsu Nodoi, for example, mm. and by um, raising expectations perhaps to a level where they're a little bit unreasonable. And this is, you know, this is Bayern's problem sometimes. They just get a little bit ahead of themselves. Uli Hoeness in February appeared on a, a TV show saying, you know, you don't even know how many players we've already got lined up. So you know, all the Bayern fans are kind of rubbing their hands. And then nothing happens, sure. which made them look a little... Has, bit... Hasn't
1: developed the habit of thinking before he speaks, Uli really hernes has he <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> Well, I think they were convinced that the likes of um, Hudson-Odoi, for example, yeah. at that point, that it could get them over the line. Um, and, you know, who, who's, who's to blame effectively? It's hard to say, but communication and sort of a... PR. Unified way of, of um, putting across the club's message has never been one of Bayern's uh, strong points. And the way that they handled uh, some of the negotiations, I think brought that into sharp belief yet once more.
1: Joe, can we change tact and talk a, a little bit about Jürgen Klopp? Yeah. Um, Cause I, I read Rafa's book over um, while I was on holiday, um, bring the noise. It's, uh, it's great. It's, I, I felt like I, I got to know a little bit more than the, when, when someone starts to manage Liverpool, they become infused by all that mythology and it becomes someone like Klopp eventually becomes an extension of a Shankly a Paisley. And, and, Uh, it's it's excellent because it actually the the background detail is superb um i want to know what is um we're we're sort of about three weeks removed from him talking potentially about um a sabbatical should he ever leave liverpool before you know moving on what is his career's trajectory from this point post european cup factory and things like the german national team job where is he because I, i i see him as someone a wonderful manager obviously but someone who's um Sorry for using this word, but it, the project that he represents applies in specific parts of the football world. Like Anfield is a very obvious place for Jürgen Klopp to be successful. Dortmund, of course, Germany. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how it translates to a national team environment. Where do you see his career over the next five, ten years? That's a very broad question. Yeah, no, I,
2: it's a fair one. It's tough to answer because everything I've heard from from him and people around them is that he doesn't necessarily have these long-term plans in place. I don't think he necessarily feels, okay, seven years at mine, seven years at uh, Dortmund, seven years at Liverpool, 2022, you know, my seven years are up, then my next stop. Big, he's, uh, not Adiola, he, he's, not he's not Guardiola, is he? He's not Guardiola, he's not Mourinho, who's already, you know, sort of, if he was Mourinho, he'd be already sort of negotiating with other clubs and see. He'd be on
1: television acting as a pundit, presumably just making sure everyone knows he's still there. He's still available. Uh, I don't
2: know about that, but he would certainly try to leverage, I think his position. And in a way that's, that's almost a problem for, for LFC because the natural thing now would have been to give him a new contract for more money, but he's not really interested in that. He is happy with the existing contract. He doesn't want to extend at this point thinking, I'm not sure what happens in three years time I'm not sure I'm still I still have the same energy I still have the same um, fire I still get the same reaction from the players you know I think he learned both at Mindset that there is perhaps a natural point where you either have to change the whole team or you have to change the manager for things to continue because things can become stale a little bit and there's only so many team talks you can do before players switch off so unless you want to kind of build a new Liverpool at that point which will have to be necessary you know it'll be Liverpool post Firmino post Mane post Salah it's frightening to think about it I think as a, as a Liverpool fan um, then the alternative is to move on so I think he doesn't want to prejudge all that by by doing a new deal now or by also categorically saying you know I'm definitely off um, no, I don't think he's his interest to do that does he it? hasn't I don't I just don't think he's made up his mind but what I would say is I think I just sense that the German national team and the ability sort of to infuse a whole nation and to win something for a nation and to win perhaps the World Cup or the Euros in 2024 is something that the back of his mind, I think, does uh, appeal. And I think it also is a more natural, if he, if, if he wants to continue management, it's probably a more natural destination uh, when you're 55 and going towards your 60s, then starting this whole project type management at a fourth club, because I think it is incredibly um, tiring to not just be the manager, but as you said, really be the figurehead for a whole city or for one half of the city in Liverpool, source of energy, and for a almost. for a community, for a club, for you know, for a tribe, and um, that is very tough to. Do it for a fourth time, so I think the national team, which is a much more genteel way of working, would, would be very appealing.
1: So, another question for you because I would do it. One of, one, of, one of the most interesting parts of your book is when he's, when he's first meeting with FSG and he's talking about activating the Anfield crowd, and he's also talking when he's, when he's considering, um, I think it's when he's moving from Mainz to Dortmund or from Dortmund to Liverpool. There's a in both instances, there's this question of whether his communication translates to the new environment particularly when he moves into a new language of course in a national team environment where you're meeting players um, at best every two months and your relationship with the crowd and your relationship with your home supporters is naturally different I I can't imagine Klopp I'm not saying he wouldn't be successful in that environment I find it it's almost like a quantum leap between what he's known for and what's been behind success and what we know international football to be which is kind of I don't know about in Germany, but a much more dispassionate environment, which is, it seems almost sort of contrary to what he stands for. I
2: think it's a different rhythm of passion because the passion and the, the, the pressure comes every two years yeah, in a very intense two, three maximum of four weeks where every game is, is key. In between that, you have a lot of time to just, develop things of course you don't have a lot of time with a team but you're a lot of time to think about things a lot of time to um you know to, to decide who are the right players for me and in a way of course you know you have there's fewer um moments where you can do real coaching at the same time there's more management in the sense that you can really pick your team uh, as a as a club manager you have to be in charge for three or four years before a team is really your team and even then there'll always be players who cannot be sold or have to play because they're so um, important for the team. General national manager, as Leuven has now done, You know, takes three of the biggest players and from one moment to the next, they're gone. So that comes with with the kind of power that club managers rarely have anymore because they can't get rid of these players even if they want to. So uh, yes, uh, different. But the one thing that I have learned about Klopp and the one thing I think that everyone knows who's, who's worked with him is the guy is super smart and he's adaptable and i think he would figure out how his way of working and the you know slightly different requirements of being a national manager how these two things would work together and uh, i have no doubt that he'd be he'd be very good he'd be this is another thing he'd be so popular i mean he'd be like the equivalent of i don't know i don't know if there's an equivalent he'd be you know he'd be like the most popular man in germany taking over the most important team in Germany is so that already
1: the case is if, if if Love was to walk out tomorrow would he be the popular choice already oh yeah yeah
2: yeah. I mean it's not just it's just not just a national team Dortmund would take him yeah Bayern would love to have him I think even Schalke would love to have him
1: could he but Bayern Munich given the things he said in the past could he ever manage Bayern Munich is, it, is that politically possible
2: I think it is I don't think he is as categorical as, uh, as people would would like to see him yeah I think he's is quite pragmatic, and I think he wants to be at a club where, you know, people, of course, need to buy into his ideas, but he also wants to be successful and wants to be given um, the opportunities to, to, uh, yeah, to kind of put his football in in motion and put that on the pitch. So he's always been, I think, privately fairly open to the Bayern idea at least in his communication with Bayern but at the same time I think because he went a different path Dortmund-Liverpool more for sort of pragmatic reasons rather than let's say ideological ones I think going to Bayern is going to be very difficult Um, and it it would seem more natural for me um, to see him stay at Liverpool until he feels the job is done one way or the other and then if he still wants to coach then maybe uh, go for a different style and a different uh, rhythm, which I think by then might be might be very attractive, just that bit more distance that you can have from you know, putting the cones out every day.
1: It's a different stage of life as well. He's getting older. You don't want necessarily to be you know, 330 days a year on the training pitch, I'd, I'd imagine, mm. as a young fan. I
0: think uh, people just want to be around him, right? I mean, it's very rare that you hear that there's been some kerfuffle or friction, uh, a club that Klopp is the manager of, and I think you know similarly to 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 Guardiola, people want to work with him. But I think the difference is that players want to work with Guardiola because they are an admirer of the type of football. Whereas I think players want to play with Klopp for the same reason, but also because he's so cool. Like I, just, you know, I, w- I want to be friends with that guy. I want to be around him all the time. Yeah, he has a magnetism have, to him. He Definitely, does, yeah. and and that kind that kind of that hangs over all of the other bigger egos in, in a dressing room. And I think with some of the issues that, you know, you've been describing Loeff have with Germany um, over the last couple of years in terms of deselecting or selecting big names and what happens when you have a player that you have to play, I think uh, having J- uh, Jurgen Klopp as, as the manager of that team would kind of dispel many of those issues because everybody loves him. Or is that naive? Have I been struck by... Uh, by No, I think by and large people,
2: of- people do appreciate him as a person but the bigger story is that they feel a little bit like Guardiola but in a very different way that he helps them play well he helps them to perform well as players but also as a team and that ultimately is is the reason why any player follows a manager if they feel that you know Mm. this guy helps me this guy makes me better this guy increases my chances of, of of winning things of scoring goals of making more money with a big contract he, I love him, and um, I, I think with Klopp it's probably more on an emotional basis than, than with Pep, who's more technical. But I'd say the net effect isn't all that different because with Pep, also the, the attraction by, for many players is you know, if I go there and if I receive that kind of coaching, even if it comes without the arm uh, around the shoulder and without the hugs. Uh, and uh, maybe the empathy that that Klopp brings, it still it'll help me as a professional so much that I want to be there. So you know that is what coaching really is: is helping players perform. And uh, both of them do did really well.
1: It's really interesting the list of players who under Klopp have have existed in a certain sphere within the game. So even going back to Dortmund, it's like a uh, Henrik Mkhitaryan and Shinji Kagawa. Like now, if you think of um, what struck me is if you consider the reputations of players like. Sadio Mane, Roberto Firmino, Mohamed Salah—like by popular consensus, all really good players before they arrived at Liverpool and before they were managed by Klopp. But now they're actually stars of the game. And Van Dijk is the same. And Georgino Wad Alden. like when, no one when 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 he when he joins from Newcastle no one thinks that's a transfer upon which European cups are going to be decided in the future. And okay, he wasn't hugely relevant in in last year's final. But on the club, you've seen actually the range of the player. It's extraordinary. Like if you if people haven't seen, um, and we're not gonna dwell on it anymore, but if anyone hasn't seen that that Holland win in Germany, like go back and look at one Alden's performance because three or four years ago that One is not capable of being that player, I don't think anyway. Um so his effect on him is amazing. It really yeah. is.
2: Well it, there's two things to this. Um one is is having a team that works. Every player just looks some suddenly looks better. Yeah. Um you know you, you have players like like Robertson or Henderson and uh, you know players who individually wouldn't have received a lot of attention, a lot of plaudits, but because they're part of a team that works, it brings out the best of them and people respond to them and, and feel that these are great players, uh, which they are. Um, and there's also the emotional, um, uh, the emotional part of the coaching where Klopp, I think, manages to push people's buttons and gets a tune out of them. Tyron is an interesting one because he is the only guy that Klopp never managed to get to perform. He only ever played well under Tuchel for one year. And he's been very disappointing for every manager ever since. Before and ever since. It's impossible to know. I mean, he seems to be very, uh, very um, prone to to confidence, uh, loss of confidence, seems to be um, not resilient, Uh, seems to be very easily lost in games very very difficult to say um I mean Tuchel got him to read a couple of books one of them I think is called um of the Inner Mind or something it's quite pretty famous book by a sports psychologist I think uh which worked but Klopp wasn't able to do it um and uh you know successive managers at both Man United and, and and Arsenal weren't able to do it so I think he He's a guy who unfortunately just doesn't seem to be able to bring his immense talent onto the pitch very, uh, on a consistent basis. We've got questions, Joe?
0: Uh, can I ask one more question based on what you just said? Have you heard of many other instances in where a manager has asked a player to read a book? I've never heard that before. I'm just curious. I mean, it might just be me that I haven't heard that before. But I bet that, you anything you like, Brendan
1: Rodgers does it, whether we know about <laughs> it or not. It's such a Brendanism. It's, it's so, yeah, you got can see days. it, can't you? Yeah. Um, read a Dan Brown, you'll love it.
0: Mm. That fascinates me, though.
2: Have you heard that before? (laughs) Um, I'm sure there must have been incidents, but I can't think of one at the moment. I mean, the Tuchel one is quite famous because Mkhitaryan was struggling so much on the Klopp and then became this fantastic player that was wanted by absolutely everyone in European football and ended up going to Man United uh, for a lot of money um, and then wasn't able to, to replicate his form once more.
1: Mm. Walter Winterbottom used to, uh, he, he used to try and get players to read the Iliad by all accounts Really? Really into it, loved it Why I mean that? he's kind of like your, That's boring, sort isn't of it? A, a an arcane version of Andre Villas-Boas yeah. back in the 50s who were uh, a bit detached He did actually play but he, um, yeah, he liked his uh, classical literature, or well, literature I suppose but yeah
0: Questions from the community Hacken asks, and I can't really read it from this angle there has been a lot of talk lately about younger foreign players coming to play in the Bundesliga. Should young German players be doing the same and uh, going elsewhere?
2: Well, there's a boy, um, there's a teenager at Ajax called Nico Kühne, who's doing quite well at the moment. Um, We'll see if he can uh, sort of become the German equivalent of Jadon Sancho in a foreign league, as it were. But by and large, the reason why English players have become very popular um, when it comes to you know getting young players in is because Bundesliga sort of fulfills a need for them. They are looking uh, for regular game time at a good level. In the past, they'd be loaned out to championship teams. But chances are they can't really play the kind of football that they need to play in order to really get ahead in their own teams. Um, but their clubs are, as you can expect, reluctant to give them to better teams because then they would improve their rivals. So mm-hmm. unless you really want to step down a level and go into a side batting relegation or it's team in mid-table playing, maybe not the kind of football that you want, going abroad is, has actually become a, a good idea, and whether that's on loan or in the case of, of Sancho, uh, on, a, on a real deal. And uh, the opposite... As it were, um, need doesn't really exist so much because the loan system is a lot less uh, adversarial. In Germany, clubs are less reluctant to to loan players out. There isn't uh, that bigger a, uh, a fear, you know, oh this guy might might succeed at one of our rivals. You know what's going to happen. The, the 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 press will kill us.
0: Why is that? Why is it different?
2: I think it's just seen as a kind of an accepted part of of Bundesliga business. I mean, there's a variety of Bayern players, for example, who went through really important loan spells at big teams. Bubble went to Hamburg, Lahm went to Stuttgart, Alaba went to Hoffenheim. Uh, There's a few more who really, at a crucial time of their development, were loaned out and came back much better players. Mm. Um, Gnabry was on on loan at Hoffenheim, was at Bremen before when Bayern were already kind of in the background waiting for him to develop. So it's... It's just a more, shall we say, organised career trajectory. So the the need to go isn't that strong, and um, I think it's become it's it's not as attractive because if you're a young Germany player, you look at the problems of Jaden Sancho and of Hudson, Dolan and think, well, these guys have issues getting into the into their teams. If I come as a foreigner without the p- protection and the maybe the uh, you know the, the clamour from the fans to get one of their own in, what chance do I really have to break into this side? So the attraction isn't very strong.
1: Rafa, I've got a niche question. What happened to Atken Akanyak? I remember seeing him if I'm saying that right, do you know who I mean by that or am who is that? He was I, I used to watch quite a lot of youth football and he was um, he captained Germany's, I think, under eighteens a few years ago. He was in the same um, he's a Leverkusen, he still is presumably. And he looked as close to a dead certainty to be... What was his name? Atakan Akanyak. I might be saying that wrong. Um, I think maybe... So, no, no
0: if, it, sorry, <laughs> sorry, if I dreamt <laughs> this footballer. Sorry, no idea. <sighs> Okay, Look him up on your phone and I'll ask the next question.
1: No, I don't need to look him up on my phone. I, I know he exists. I, just, I don't believe you. I had a classic him, look, I, him, I,
0: look him up on your phone. Summer at
1: home watching youth football fall in love with a, a player. I think he's, <laughs> no, think he's destined the for the Ballon in five years.
0: It's the beginning of a... Cut that out. Song. Okay, fine. Uh, okay. No, I'm going to definitely we'll be leaving that in. Benjamin <laughs> Scott, Rafa has made it... Apparently you've made it clear, Rafa, that you don't think Niko Kovac is the right manager for Bayern. What exactly... Does he think that Kovac lacks?
2: The big problem for Kovac certainly last season was to give Bayern ideas with the ball. Bayern will have the ball against more sides. Bayern will need solutions in the final third. And of course, you can just rely on the individual quality of Bayern to to do something. And more often than not, that will happen uh, in the league uh, domestically. But when it comes to the better sides, then it'd be nice to have a, bit of direction from outside rather than a coach telling you you know what you just go out there and express Mm. yourself you know you'll be fine yeah um I don't want to do Kovac a disservice because I think he has taken some of the criticism on board and the signs are that he is investing a bit more time now looking for playing patterns and looking for processes on the ball in recognition of Bayern's problems last year but certainly the feedback from from the players was very much, you know, we are focusing a lot on defending a lot on running and lots of, sort of the basics of the game. But what we need really is buy We weren't given and uh, buy-in install the new assistant coach in Hansi Flick, the former assistant of uh, Joachim Löw at the World Cup in 2018 and ball accounts Flick and Kovac are now responding to some of those needs and, uh, have changed training a little bit. So I don't want to say that, you know, Kovac is is not able to to do it, but certainly last year he wasn't really doing what Bayern were, were looking for.
0: Hmm. Okay. Uh, there is another question here from Jake Howard. It's very long and I'm going to uh, slim it down by uh, asking Goetze. Hmm? Mario Goetze, he scored that wonderful World Cup final goal uh, and he, uh, you know, had been described in the same category as players like uh, Lionel Messi in the past. uh, What's happening with him now?
2: Well, what's happening is that he is um, looking quite sharp um, every time he does play, which doesn't happen all that often because under Lucien Favre, he's not seen as a starter. He did play quite a few games in the second half of the season, but that mostly came as a false nine or with Royce ahead of him. Uh, right now, Paka Kase is looking very strong and is the number nine and Royce is behind him. So if you see Goetze as a central uh, forward of some sort, it's very difficult to, to find a space for him for, for Favre. Mm. Um, I think the good news is that Goetze seems to kind of have m- made peace with the situation and perhaps no longer feels that he's under pressure to justify this German Massey tag and the insane expectations that followed him when he initially uh, broke through and then made a, the move to bind that I think most people will see as a mistake. He still thinks it was the right move or at least it was at the right time the right move. Um, in hindsight, who knows? So yeah, it'll be interesting because he's out of contract. Dortmund want to renew the contract but perhaps not for the sort of money that he is currently on. And uh, it comes down to what kind of market he has and how he will perform going into March, April, when the decision will be taken. So it's a, it's a big season for him. Mm-hmm. But having spoken to him in July, he seemed very relaxed and just seemed to think that, you know, my football would be fine and um, I'm going to be OK. He's still only 27.
1: What's his relationship like with the Dortmund fans now as a result of obviously buying?
2: Well, I think Dortmund fans have never quite forgiven him uh, for leaving to Bayern, but at the same time, he's not someone who gets jeered, or they they probably think a lot about uh, him. Uh, it's the same with Hummels, I guess. You know, having returned back from Dortmund, most fans who somehow feel betrayed or somehow feel that this was the wrong decision just tend to ignore these guys and, and just concentrate on supporting the team. But he, neither of them gets. Gets a really strong negative reaction.
1: Either.
0: Do you want to ask about Permed Soccer Book before we finish?
1: I do. I also want to update listeners who want to know that Askana Kinyak is on loan in the Turkish Super having <laughs> been sold to Willem Tway. And that's why you are the scout. Oh, I thought I, I thought he was going to win hundred cats for play. Germany. Remember yeah. that name? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to. If 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 anybody's edited my work is out there, can they delete any article in which I've referenced him? Just because I feel that's okay. Cool. Um, Rafa, um, we're recording this on the Monday, uh, 9th of September and it's release day for Per Mesaka's autobiography. Um, which is actually translated by my fiance, Just is a nice little neat symmetry there. Um, I've read it. I, I actually love the book because Mesaka's an interesting guy. He's really forthright. Um, there are, um, especially the bits about, um, what really stuck with me was his own, he built his own conditioning program around his career. He actually took it upon himself, which, okay, he's an unusual size and shape for a footballer. He had injury difficulties as a youngster and he was you know, almost given up on several times. Do you think kind of just for me, and this isn't really an open question, it's a statement which I'm hoping you'll agree with, given the way the world is now, given the way the football world is and how congested the calendar is and the exertions placed on young players, um, how important do you think it is to have someone like that, a a kind of an original thinker in charge of a... um, a top flight academy, like a really prominent academy to this is, this question is getting worse by the second.
0: It's, I like it. It's very long though. Do you
1: see what I'm getting at? Cause I, I like the idea of, of, of someone who's willing to think outside the box, willing to, um, to encourage young players to take responsible responsibility for their careers. Um, given how much physical pressure they're now under. Is there any sense in that at all that you can pick out?
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, having spoken to, people have seen him work now at Arsenal for just over a year. I think players and and certainly parents respond to him because of his own history, because he was someone who had to do extra stuff. He was not gifted necessarily, technically, to just um, succeed. It it was with him, it was all work and it was all, um, as you said, taking responsibility and thinking about, you know, how can I get better? What can I do? And I think... You know the idea of education and sort of self betterment is something that does resonate, and that is necessary because professional English football I think over the last few years perhaps went into youth development a little bit too early in the sense that they wanted players just to specialize on being footballers and uh, there's there's a nice line that he said in the book where you know it's generally accepted in germany that that football is sort of a school of life you know the the things you learn in football the fair play the the team spirit the looking after yourself all these things are very beneficial for your later life but you he said you can actually turn it on your head as well and say that life is a really good school for football what he means by that is you know if you are exposed to the real world if you're having to take the bus if you are thinking about homework, if you're having to juggle different balls, being adaptive, being flexible, being challenged to do things, it will, in his view, then help you on the pitch as well to deal with situations that are unforeseen and don't look like the training ex- uh, exercises and the, or the, the perfect pitches that you play on as a 15, 16-year-old in an academy. And that that is his big big story, if you will. And I think he's trying to make changes and trying to um, get players to sort of wake up to the bigger world out there, because uh, he thinks that is very beneficial uh, when it comes to sort of building personality, but also ultimately building good footballers.
1: Yeah, do I mean if um, people are listening do do try and find time to read that? I think it's it's quite rare to find someone so close to his career, to the end of his career, being so forthright. Um, because actually I, I interviewed um, Jens Lehmann a few years ago and he, he said many of the same things about education. He was honestly appalled at the lack of emphasis on education in English football. Um, there's a, obviously a personality difference between Mertesacker and Lehmann. I, I think I haven't met Bear Mertesacker, but he's it's a little bit easier to warm to him um, and his personal experience and the kind of difficulties he faced. You can see why he has these ideas. And I just think it's really interesting to have someone like that in charge of an English academy just mm-hmm. because of... What kind i know it's, these things come on a time lag it's not going to produce a different type of arsenal footballer overnight, but if he's there for five ten years the kind of um i think the buzz phrase in english was problem solving so kind of it's um uh a, a, a ism um but it's true like if you if you get a player to take responsibility for his life then that kind of tenuously applies to things on the field um so yeah do read it is it's fascinating it's um i'm I'm generally a little bit skeptical autobiographies, but I loved it so um yeah
2: it was also really interesting to see the reaction of some of the players who've read the book and when it came out in Germany. A lot of them um, seem to really be able to relate to the pressure and the almost sort of physical um, unwellness that uh, accompanied because of the pressure he experienced as a player. Because I think he started from a point where he perhaps never really felt 100% Confident that he was good enough,
1: kind of thought that he was he was in the academies because of his dad originally, didn't he? Yeah,
2: correct. Um, so he made it as a footballer late. He made it as a footballer in spite of many of his uh, sort of physical limitations. Um, and I think as a result, perhaps he always felt somehow under pressure to justify his place and to, you know, not to make any mistakes, especially as a defender. I guess where every mistake just can make the difference between you winning the World Cup and Germany getting knocked out in the last 16 and everyone blaming you. So, um, yeah, it was very interesting to, you know, to talk to to players now who who read the book and who were almost, I think, I didn't want to say they, they admitted that they had similar thoughts, but you could just tell that it could relate it very much. And um, I think it opened the door maybe to one or two more players after their careers being a bit more open about their vulnerabilities and their, you know, the, the, the kind of precariousness of, of the situation that they've often find themselves in as, as professional footballers.
0: Mm. I always find it very moving when they do that because suddenly yeah. like you see them as a... Human. Fragile human beings. So. Human yeah. being. Yeah,
1: I, I, you know, that, that's what you take away from it. Yeah. He comes across as a human being, not as a sort of an airbrush star of the game, but someone who is, uh, who is, who is scrapped for everything he's got. And it's, um, it's actually quite an inspiring story given where he is as a teenager. And how he sees himself within that context, and what he became, and what he is now, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a very self-deprecating guy, seemingly. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a great
0: read; it really is. Available for purchase online and in shops, presumably. As of now. As of now. Okay, uh, Rafa Honigstein, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it's been it. Great. Um, do go and read Rafa's work at The Athletic; uh, it's wonderful. And um, we'll be back next week with something else. Thank you. Goodbye.